0: Within the prison, I really liked the uh, emphasis and the, the dedication of the governor and his team to rehabilitating prisoners. To under- they showed great sensitivity around understanding the complexity of the task that's had, the complexity of issues with which people present in the criminal justice system. And they were really prepared to uh, work in a very humane way Delivering the sentence of the court.
1: Welcome to the Bailiwick Express podcast. My name is Matthew Leach. I'll be joined each week by a guest for a series of podcasts. Each will shine a light on topics from across the Bailiwick. The format will change week to week, We'll have debates, reviews, hot seat interviews and special guests, so stick with us as we offer some insight on some of the most important issues we in the Bailiwick face. A former inmate turned prison reform advocate has commended Guernsey's approach to incarceration after visiting the island. Paula Harriet is the head of prisoner involvement at the Prison Reform Trust, a group of campaigners who champion rehabilitation over punishment. She came to Guernsey to speak about lived experience after spending four years in prison for drug possession. She spoke to me about why rehabilitation is so important and why justice is never black and white. What does lived experience
0: mean? mean? Well, I suppose we all live through things, don't we? And that is our lived experience. And what I would say is that our lived experience of anything, you know, if you've lived through, I don't know, cancer, you have lived experience of how having cancer feels, doesn't it? And that gives you a particular insight into that experience that you couldn't get necessarily through reading a book about it. You would you would understand this, the nuances, the sophistic- you would understand the emotional impact in a way. You might be able to read, you know, this is a really deeply unsettling experience and you'll experience anxiety. But to live through it brings life to those words. And then when you'll be able to communicate about that lived experience, it'll be conveyed with the same depth of emotion. Yeah. And in, You know, the emotional intelligence that derives from that experience, you'll be adding that and amplifying what's written about it. And maybe a lot of communication, just as podcast listeners will know, is not just about the words we use, but it's about the emotion that we can convey, and that emotion is conveyed through accessing the insight of our lived experience quite often.
1: It's quite an eloquent explanation of <laughs> what lived experiences. I like that a lot. And so, and
0: so you know, like we use, we often use our lived experiences in all of our interactions with one another. That will be your lived experience of something you witnessed as a child, or your experience at school. Will will have shaped your interests and shaped and uh, shaped your passions. And I, I talk in the context of my work, which is particularly in prisons and criminal justice probation reintegration of people with criminal convictions into the community we have professional expertise and subject matter experts in that world and we ought to listen to them but we also ought to, ought to integrate the lived experience the deeper insight of the lived experience of people who've been through the justice system into the discussion so that we are enriched in our understanding through integration of that lived experience into our work into our worlds
1: and so you've come over to the channel islands to talk about your lived experience yeah and so your lived experience was that you were in prison yourself
0: i was yeah so i got sentenced to eight years in prison in 2004 uh, for uh, supplying cocaine i was a cocaine user i was a heavy cocaine user um and I, yeah that was my lived experience I got eight years I served four years of that in prison and then I was paroled and spent four years on license uh, which is what we call it in the UK yeah you're licensed uh, as a serving prisoner but you're serving the rest of your sentence in the community and you attend probation um, once in the first stages once a week uh, towards the latter stages once a month uh, to ensure that you're complying with the conditions of that license. Yeah, I had um, a very, uh, you know, that's not not a short sentence.
1: No, it's a long time.
0: And as a mother, I was a mother of five children, aged between the ages of nine and um, 16, 17, when I went to prison. Um, A very deeply impactful sentence. Um, Deep all sorts of levels yeah. uh, but I, I think primarily around the loss of identity as a mother and the shame and the, the embarrassment the stigma of that sentence, what that meant the loss of hope that it meant the um, the loss of any pride and self-respect that I had in myself just by virtue of knowing that I had let my children down let my family down and um, let myself down, and that's a very dark place to live, yeah. Yeah, a very dark place.
1: And so I wanted to you know, speak <laughs> specifically, and no, I yeah. think that's very important to bring up, because I did want to touch base later on um, talking about the parents, incarcerated yeah. parents who have yeah. children on the yeah. outside. But you know, if we start from the beginning, I suppose, I'm interested to know what your lived experience, what do you think people don't understand or don't grasp really of people who have been through the justice system or, or prisoners or, or people who've been involved in this way? What do I you have th- that other people don't have?
0: I think what we have is the lived experience of the complexity of the reasons why people end up in prison. It's very easy to simplify it down to there are some good people in the world and there's some terrible, awful people in the world and we don't care what happens to them because they break the law. It's too black and white, I suppose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's they're, they're, but that's a very, you know, that's commonplace understanding isn't it of imprisonment you can say these are just bad people and they don't they don't warrant our concern they don't warrant our care they've offended us as a community they've done awful stuff they've hurt us and now they have to suffer the consequences of that and we don't care what pain they go through
1: Suffers the word there, I suppose. They I mean,
0: suffer the consequences. But the suffering what what I would say from the understanding that I've gathered through my lived experience is that the weighting of responsibility on one individual for an action is a very convenient way we disassociate ourselves in community from our responsibility for the conditions that may have driven that person into that act. And if you look at and, and that I don't know what people say, people say, oh no, but people have done these things, they've had active choices. Yeah. But what I know from the complexity of my life and of the work that I've done subsequently listening to thousands of prisoners and their stories in my work since two thousand since my release is that there are things such as adverse childhood experiences that people witness they grow up around alcoholic parents, they grow up around substance misuse parents, they don't have the equality of opportunity to schooling, they don't enjoy the privilege that some people experience of wealth and well-being and emotional security. And these things create fragilities and vulnerabilities within individuals that mean they're more likely to not be able to read and write properly, suffer mental ill health, suffer physical uh, ill health and um, feel disassociated from society and therefore they are lost and and more likely to make poor choices that lead them down the route of offending against the community. And, you know, if you look at that, if you look at one of the things I'm really worried about, for instance, is the proportion of young people who are in the care system of the state in the UK who end up in the prison system. You're more likely, if you're in the care system, to go to prison than you are to go to further education. That's the responsibility of the state. That can't be those children's responsibility. They've been taken out of dysfunctional, harmful environments into the care of the state. And we, as the community, as taxpayers, haven't been able to help those children to navigate that trauma. We've actually added to that trauma and then we add to it more when they fail and are, are criminalised because of their poor choices into the criminal justice system and destroy those people's lives forever. So that's one thing I'm worried about, about how we don't recognise. My lived experience has taught me, and I look at my own life, there are so many complexities about why people end up making these poor choices. They're not, it's not a, like, always a rational decision, it's an irrational decision. I was a drug user, my thoughts were not rational. No. They were irrational, <laughs> you know. I know that now, because I'm free from drugs since 2004. But I didn't know that at the time. You know, when you use cocaine, it it permits you to take risks in ways that you wouldn't take risks no. now. Yeah, that it's it's designed for that.
1: It's disinhibiting you. are Not thinking
0: straight. Yeah. So so understanding that, what were the causes of that? those questions, why was I using drugs? What were the things that I was encountering? You know, domestic violence, you know, nine times the police came to my house for domestic violence before I went to prison. Where was that taken into account as mitigation? And, and, and in understanding of why I committed the crimes I had. And on release from prison, so the stigmatization of people who've been to prison, the continued othering of those people, of us, of me, you know the continuing lack of trust, the lack of welcome back to community, the lack of support from the community to recognise that people have made bad choices, but they've they've paid the price. They've been in prison, and it's not and a stra- la- and, and now we should be prepared to reintegrate them and not hold them to account for the rest of their lives because you might say, well, you don't get off that easy, but prisoners don't get off that easy as a mother who have gone to prison myself, you know, it's a life sentence. It's not a four-year sentence or an eight-year sentence. It's a life sentence. My, I look at my kids now who were without me for four years and I, I look how it's shaped them and I feel responsible and I feel sad and I feel guilty and, you know, it's a constant reminder of failure. So to to have other people uh deem me a failure as well would probably drive me under yeah what keeps me afloat you know is my persistence and belief in myself but it's also the support of great people good people i call them the angels in our community who see beyond defenses who who deal with the moral conundrums that are um, become visible you know like emerge within us when yeah. we talk about prison and we talk about crime it's you know i often say it's not a morally neutral conversation but the good people are people who've done the internal work about what do i feel about the crime but what do i know about the evidence of what works to support people to move beyond this how do i see the broader picture about where our society is responsible, and what we're responsible for, and how do we all come to a safe place together? That's where the good people—they've they, they, negotiated that internally, and they then are prepared to offer support to people. And, and definitely, have been people in my life, in my journey, who've absolutely—I call you know lighthouses of people who've gone. Do you know what, Paula? No matter what, you're a person. We want you back. We recognize your strengths and we want you to flourish and we're not going to we're not going to hold that mistake however grave that mistake is against you for the rest of your life you know we want you to do well and uh, we need more of those people in yeah. our community to gather round and act in solidarity and act as allies and act as supporters to people who've had tough times because there isn't really anybody in prison got some hasn't had a tough time and people might go we've all had tough times and you know like we can all you know i've had tough times too but i didn't make those choices yeah well that's you
1: mm. and it's and luck it, of the dice sometimes i mean you i um, mean it's luck of the luck of the dice yeah. sometimes i mean any i think there could be an argument made that any one of us everyone makes bad decisions yeah. i make bad decisions yeah. all the time it's sometimes they can lead you down the path that gets you involved with the justice system and people should be treated with some empathy there i think sometimes i
0: think treated with some empathy and we should also look at the demographics of people who go into the justice system overarchingly and you should look at about it's generally people from poor communities who end up in the justice system and you should be looking at that too like what is our what is our responsibility around poverty and lack of opportunity and not not you know like it's easy to 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 focus in on this sort of individual choice aspect and that's not to uh, move away from everybody everybody has personal responsibility and individual responsibility but like you said some people have better chances than others
1: and so how did your experience lead you into the trust then and what does the the prison reform trust aim to do
0: the prison reform trust is a sort of advocacy research think tank it's like much more policy orientated about trying to lobby government in the uk um support operational developments within the what they call the hmps What's it stand for her majesty's prison and probation service in the uk so i work very closely with operational leads um and ministers and uh, senior civil servants and that's you know like highly unusual for a former prisoner yeah to have that access um and that's and primarily because of the Prison Reform Trust has that access and I'm privileged to work at the Prison Reform Trust as a senior manager member and so um, can utilise that access as a sort of a platform for, for change. Um, how did I get there? Wow, that was a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, that was not an easy journey either because, as I've said, it's highly unusual to see a former prisoner in a strategic position uh, and when I came out of prison in 2008 I don't think anybody any former prisoners worked in the CJS system at all um, so so I can talk from my lived experience of how difficult it is to come out of prison even when you really want to do good work you know I mean I didn't have a firm idea of how I wanted to contribute to the prison system when I first came out of prison I just knew that I didn't want I'd witnessed such such a, a waste of resources, misplaced resources, poor practice, missed opportunities to support people effectively, and a lot of just warehousing people. And I think that's what I've come here in Jersey and Guernsey and noticed is that the system is very different here and it's quite, you know, I've just had a visit, I've just come from a visit at the prison in Guernsey and come away going... Wow, I wish I wish that we had this in the UK. Oh,
1: that's, I mean, I wanted to come on to that, because obviously you've come over to Jersey and Guernsey. You yeah. said you've had a chance to visit both prisons?
0: No, I haven't been to the one in Jersey, but I've been okay. to the one in Guernsey this morning, yeah. And
1: what did you make of your experience? Did you speak to prisoners there? What I did. did. You do? I spoke
0: to prisoners, staff, to the governor. Really impressive. Just a real focus in the prison on um, rehabilitation and so, for me, if a prison sentence has rehabilitation at its core, then it has purpose, and it has to be, you know, meaningful. Uh, but sadly, in the UK, the prison system is overwhelmed uh, through lack of resourcing, overcrowding, um, difficulty to recruit prison officers to the job, and it just means that prisoners end up lying on their beds in their cells and. That's not really a rehabilitative function. It's not re- delivering rehabilitation to the public. That's just warehousing people. And I, I always talk about, um, you know, if your car, if you think about prisoners as a car, and there's your car breaks down, and you know, you take it to the garage, and you expect the mechanic to put it on the machine, do an analysis of why it's broken down, don't you, and like uh, find out what part's missing. <laughs> And, and buy the part, fix the part, tell you to come back in X amount of weeks yeah, and pay the money, you'd you think, okay, that's 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 right. But if the mechanic said to you, do you know what? Don't know really what's wrong with it. Can't be bothered to find out. Stick it in the yard for four years. Come back. I think it might have fixed itself.
1: <laughs> I've never heard that analogy before. That's great, yeah. <laughs> but you know, like, you would think, well, what about, pa- but still give you shed. a bill? yeah.
0: 'Cause remember taxpayers pay to keep people in prison. The purpose is yes, to, to to acknowledge harm, to make recompense to victims. And I understand how important that is, that we acknowledge the harm that's been done and that and, and that victims feel validated and feel healed and restored by virtue of the action of separating a person who's caused harm from the community and demonstrating the displeasure around that crime. I 100% get that. But what we also want to do is make sure people come out and don't do it again. Yeah. Because it's, it's the failure of the intervention if people keep going on the revolving door of crime, isn't it? You know, and, you know that's, that's, that means the interventions and the service has failed. And that's the point where my work comes in, actually, which is about, I lead on sort of prisoner involvement, which is prisoner feedback. Essentially, any business, any customer, here on the podcast, if if your listeners say, do you know what? They don't tune in. You'd have to analyse, maybe the content isn't what they want to listen to. Maybe we're not doing it right. You don't blame the listeners to say, why won't they tune in? (laughs) You you take responsibility for uh, responding to the user need. Yeah. And you listen to your feedback and take it seriously. A lot of businesses listen to their customer feedback. How many times have you been asked to leave, like, you know, TripAdvisor, or, you know, leave reviews of the hotel to so that people, A, feel reassured about the quality of the service, but also learn from the feedback. See, in prisons in the UK, people don't ever ask prisoners. How are you? Are we doing, doing this right?
1: Yeah. I suppose there's a, a, a historic assumption that why would you ask?
0: Yeah, but it's not pragmatic, is it? No. It's morally loaded. It's mor- so I talk about. It. It's not a morally neutral space. It's morally loaded. Not to ask a customer of a service, a service user of a service, you're actually saying we don't care about your view, your experience of our service, even our ex- your experience. We don't even want to check if we're doing this right because we don't believe your view counts. So it's morally loaded and that's why I think like more sophisticated discussions about criminal justice, people need to address the moral issues that under under and they need to be clear about the pragmatism of asking. The pragmatism of what why we're doing, the intention of the work. And and, and so it's morally loaded not to ask them. It's inherently effective to ask them. Yeah. Because when we get The feedback from prisoners about what will work, what would work, what are the interventions that work. When I was in prison, nobody asked me, they sent me on pointless courses when I needed counselling or I needed therapy or I needed, you know, detox from drugs or I needed like visions of hope for the future and and access to uh, careers counselling and different skills development. These are the things that help us to come out and not to return back if you don't ask me and you only ever operate from your own expert view which does not integrate the insight of the people who've used the service then you'll only ever replicate the same knowledge over and over again development of knowledge comes from the integration of diverse perspectives doesn't it? you know like the integration of diverse perspectives allows us to move forward towards innovation and new ideas it's, it takes a team, and the prisoner voice, the prisoner insight, the end user insight, is an important component of that wisdom that we need to solve these problems. Solve it.
1: So, what did you see in Guernsey that you liked? Then, because you mentioned that we. Yeah, were...
0: I liked. I liked the emphasis on rehabilitative co- within the prison. I really liked the uh, emphasis and the. Dedication of the governor and his team to rehabilitating prisoners. They showed great sensitivity around understanding the complexity of the task that's hand, the complexity of issues with which people present in the criminal justice system, and they were really prepared to uh, work in a very humane way, delivering the sentence of the court. So Delivering the punitive element of the sentence, but also recognizing that their job was to prepare, train, equip uh, prisoners in the prison to come out and be contributing citizens, and that required they've got a psychologist in the prison, they've got um, sort of couples therapy, family therapy, you know, um, all, all manner of interventions around employability skills. I saw, a, I saw. A Workshop for woodworking. I saw fantastic garden there. Greenhouses, it it's you know commercial yeah. growing. You know at scale. You know, like amazing like sort of um, waste recycling, uh, building. What were they saw logs? You know, people were building skills uh, from which they can exit the prison and and return to island life. And I think that. The prison's doing an amazing job. If I can be really brutally honest, I think the part that is lacking is that I see still a lot of negative and suspicious attitudes, antiquated Mm. attitudes towards naming and shaming of people in the island who've offended. And I think that's, as a person who's, from my lived experience, who's been named in the paper in my sentence. So I was named in the sun. You probably you don't get the sun here, but it's oh, we've a very... Read this. I try not to read yeah, the Yeah, well, but... me too. <laughs> me too. I, I try, genuinely try not to read it after this experience, yeah? Let alone what happened in Liverpool. But um, I was working on release on temporary licence, and I heard today that you also have that here in Guernsey, where some people, towards the end of their sentence, who are risk assessed as being safe to return, yeah. are allowed to come out to work on the island. And that's great, that's great preparation for release and prevents the trans, you know, the difficulties around transitioning from an institution back to family life. And I was one of those persons, people who was uh, able to work on release on temporary licence. And um, somebody sold a story about me to the newspaper.
1: So beyond the, beyond the story of what really so, happened, so the
0: story in the newspaper, they followed me for the day... Um, without my knowledge, the, the journalists published my photograph and published a story saying, "Drug lag let out to work in drugs rife Hansworth I'll never forget it. Uh, with my photograph, most awful photograph of me that you've ever seen. I really, I honestly, I'm much better looking than the photograph they printed. You know, I think it was the worst photograph that anybody could have ever taken of me at the worst angle. And while you're
1: out and about,
0: while I still was out and about. And published it in The Sun, National Newspaper, Readership of Millions. And uh, the very next day, uh, on the day of the publication, I was going to work as normal, from the prison, being released, going on the train, uh, walking to the bus stop, catching the bus, catching the train, catching the bus to my job. Um I felt really proud of myself that I had this volunteer opportunity that I was trusted by the prison I saw this as a signal of hope for the future I saw this as the potential to redefine my life and and be proud of myself and to make my children proud of me and then I was outed very publicly in this paper and I was sitting on the train watching people read the Sun looking over their paper at me
1: kind of dragged you back, maybe.
0: Dragged me back, maybe frightened, because I felt very vulnerable. I know that people don't like people who've been to prison. Yeah. And I felt, what if I'm attacked? What if somebody speaks to me? What if somebody wants to challenge me? What can I say? What can I do? And so there was that actual physical fear that somebody would be rude to me and that I wouldn't know how to react and that and I can't react either no so that's a very unpleasant feeling it's like being bullied at at school and being frightened of the school bullies going to pick on you so that was that wider piece but then the other piece was like the embarrassment of it all because I'm here trying to lead a different life and you know being shamed in that way Being being reminded No, it was so so hurtful. And then the consequence of that, so talking back to what I see here, is the consequence of that, is that when I did come out of prison and I got a job, so I I was working on release on temporary licence, very fortunate to get a job with the same organisation that took me on as a prisoner. And I became the regional manager there. And it was very easy for people to Google me and to find out about my past. And I couldn't ever move away from it because my picture was there, Mm. clear. You can still Google me to this day. I naively at that time thought that people wouldn't do that at work. And uh, I was the regional manager and uh, I was at work one day and one of my team came to me and said, Paula, have you been in prison? And thank God I did not lie. And I went, yeah, I have. And he said, I knew that because I Googled you, Paula. (laughs) And I went, ah oh. It's a different world. Now, but isn't it? but but it's like at that precise moment I can tell you what happened to me is that the very fragile identity that I had of a newly returned prisoner collapsed and I felt I, I can only equate it, you know, if you're struggling with um I don't know, your sexuality and then you haven't even told your mum and dad that you're struggling with your sexuality and then somebody says announces you as gay on the in the newspaper that's how it felt like being publicly outed that's how I felt when he brought that to my attention because they could access it on the paper I could never deny it I could never move on beyond it and um, and so I talk about the next stage of that story is that why allies why people who support you and have got your back in those moments is so important because at that, point, at that moment when he said that to me, I was f- so frightened that everybody was gossiping about me. Was he team.
1: supportive or was he...?
0: You know, he was supportive. He was trying to say, you need to get a handle on this, Paula. People are gossiping about you. There's a team of 16. You're the regional manager. I felt like my professional identity credibility was smashed to smithereens. And what, I rang my boss and I said, Adam, what do I do? And he said, Paula, open the laptop send a global email to everybody I've got you on this yeah he said send a global email say I understand that there's gossip in the teams about my conviction my criminal conviction Adam the chief executive has all of the relevant details yeah if you'd like to if you're concerned and you'd like to discuss this with him here's his mobile number
1: but nobody called him did they?
0: nobody called him and I said what would happen Adam if people call you he said listen Paula I believe in you. I believe in that I'm doing the right thing by supporting you. If other people don't want to understand that, then they're probably not welcome in my organisation. And and that was such a strong message about get ahead of the information flow. Be strong. Find allies. And, uh, you know, it's a call out to the community to do that as well. And, and I know it's difficult because... Sometimes people have done really abhorrent stuff and it's frightening. And I, I work in prisons with people convicted of sexual offences, for instance, now. And sometimes I'm horrified. I'm a mum with kids and I think, oh my God, you know. But I have to contend with, I would rather do something that the evidence, the research evidence says is helpful to supporting a person to stop doing that act to think differently to give them better options better better cognitive skills to recognize you know their thinking patterns i'd rather they have exposure to all of those opportunities so that they come out and they're safe yeah because people don't stay in prison forever they come out they're our neighbors they sit on the bus they they sit in podcasts they come and chat to me they sit in podcasts you know we come out and wouldn't you wouldn't we all rather that we work together on solving the problems uh, that brought us into that uh, awful situation in the first place so that we can live together as contributing citizens i think that's like for me why why i do this work and why it's so important to have discussions about criminal justice that are more sophisticated than just we're good you're bad and they're bad yeah
1: You so so you you spoke to prisoners in both Guernsey and Jersey. Obviously, the islands are very tight; they're small communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, were these concerns that you raised about naming and shaming? Did they speak about this? Yeah, people have spoken to me about that. What did? It's hard,
0: isn't it? It's hard to, as I, I mean, how I've coped with, because you know, in the UK, we have it as well. So it's not just about Guernsey, yeah, but and Jersey. But so, forgive me if that came across like you know. We oh. don't do it yet. Yeah. Oh, no, not we, at all. We, we do it all. too. Like, yeah, yeah. like we do. I, I could I look at the story I just told you yeah. about, you know, and, and I had hate mail, anonymous hate mail it's... to, to, and I have trolls on Twitter constantly. But, sorry, the point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was talking about um, prisoners in Guernsey in oh, Jersey, yeah, and Jersey yeah, and if yeah. they bought the same thing, because it's something yeah, I contend with as a journalist. Yeah. Because I believe that justice should be transparent. And that we go to court cases all the time. Mm. And I think it's correct that we report what happens in courts in Guernsey so people see what happens in courts. A hidden court system, I think, is a bad thing. I don't think reporting on things after the fact, such as your experience, is, is appropriate for or helpful at all. But,
0: but, but, but the internet has changed things, mm. hasn't it? So the footprint, so if you, in the time when that was, like, naming and... I understand about transparency, right? And I do get that point. But you have to weigh up the merits of transparency against harm, don't you? Yeah. And is transparency just voyeurism?
1: Sometimes. Do you know what I mean? And so one
0: of my big things is that, you know, voyeurism isn't helpful in this debate either, right? And actually that's quite shameful. Do we get some perverse joy out of reading about the most awful things that human beings do to one another? (coughs) And it doesn't necessarily protect victims either. No. Because it's traumatising for victims to see that so explored. There are some things that are... You have to get the balance right about when it's appropriate. And I do think that in the times of newspaper print, when that would have been archived and somebody would have had to look for that in the libraries is different from the internet footprint that follows people throughout their like journey back to community.
1: And you can stick a name in Google.
0: I can you know why I I suppose I've coped with that because my case, you know, I was in the sun, you can Google me. And I had that experience of being outed publicly and my response to that was I'm never gonna let anybody do that to me ever again. So I'm going to get it in first. I'm going to take control of it. I'm going to announce myself as a former prisoner and then you can't harm me because the harm that that creates is so deeply dis- disorientating when you're trying to you know, navigate to your identities. That other MM4865 Harriet sentence for eight years to regional manager, change makers, senior management team member at the Prison Reform Trust as I am now. You know you you somehow you've got to integrate all of those identities to be, to merge and pretending it hasn't happened leaves you quite vulnerable to being exposed so i for me as a coping strategy i have used it as a tool for liberation from all of that yeah i recognize it's not so easy for other people because some people have more you know drugs is a it, it, is a crime that sometimes is more politically acceptable, more, you know, yeah. to the public test, do you know what I mean, than Opinions people convicted of, drugs, of sexual offences. Yeah. People convicted of fraud have a lot of difficulty because it's about dishonesty.
1: Especially finding new jobs or moving yeah, on with careers. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so
0: I wouldn't say that that's the way forward for everybody, but it's worked for me.
1: Were there any? So you've done when you've come over here. You've given I think how many seminars have you given? Is it two? Is it two Two for Lloyd's
0: Bank Foundation? So thank you very much for Lloyd's Bank Foundation for bringing me over. I've had a fabulous time meeting some really sensitive, sensitive and and sophisticated uh, practitioners, leaders uh, in the sector here who've spoken really deeply and expertise around the complexities of the issues that this subject brings up criminal justice so you know some great practice here Were
1: well, you queried on any island specific challenges
0: um
1: or asked asking questions it, it,
0: that i don't know in many ways yes there might be some specific island challenges right you know the sort of inability to become invisible here post-conviction for instance is a, is a massive challenge is like yeah, oh, 100%. You know, you know, like it's much easier to disappear in London. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, if you haven't, if you, if you don't have an internet footprint, potential to reconnect in your town. Life, go to another town. You can't, you know, it's a small community. These are small communities where we're very interconnected. So that, that has some challenges, but it also, you know, has some benefits. So I, I learned at the, the prison today about the interconnectedness of families can also mean that prison officers have better relationships with people in prison because they know their families. You know, and practitioners I've met say, you know, I can't walk down the street without seeing five, six people who've been in prison in the past. So there's sort of like those closer relationships can also be used in a positive way to knit together support
1: we did. Inter- we interviewed a um, uh, an ex-prisoner who said yes. exactly the same thing. He said that um, Guernsey has the very fact that we have a small knit community means that when he left the prison system, he had family and friends and everybody just so close. He wasn't I uh, divorced see. from everybody else. He was here, and he said that really helped him.
0: Yeah, I think I think that that is one of the benefits. You know what I mean? But what we need to do is make sure that everybody's on the right page, the employers are on the right page, you know, the legislators, the political uh, leaders in this, and the islands, are also on the same page. And I know that people go, oh, it's competing priorities, you know, I'd rather build a school than invest in a prison. But when you're invested in the criminal justice system, you're uh, investing in the safety of our communities and the peace of our communities, and also to get upstream of some of these problems like prevention, better than cure, you know, like dealing with things early. And looking to our responsibility about poverty, about lack of support for people with mental Ill health or substance misuse and looking at the drivers of, of crime. These are, these are also aspects that we need to pay some attention to, as well as listening to prisoner insights.
1: Um I just wanted to touch just return back to you. we spoke before about um parents of children parents who go yeah. into the system we know in Guernsey that um children of incarcerated parents are more likely to reoffend in the future themselves and so, this is a cycle in itself I mean what are your thoughts on that how is that a cycle that can be broken
0: Wow well, I would say um if at all possible as a mother don't send mothers to prison
1: Yeah I mean that's... that would
0: be the first thing divert Women who are mothers, out of the mothers in particular, out of the criminal justice system, if at all possible. There's in the UK. I don't know the facts and figures here, but in the UK, you know, the majority of women go to prison for non-violent crime and for very short sentences. But those short sentences have the ability to really disrupt children's education, children's development, their emotional stability, and these are the, these are the drivers of intergenerational crime. So if it, uh, there's big push in the UK on diverting women out of custody, if at all possible, and sending them to bespoke women's centres, gender-specific you know, support that's about counselling therapy, addressing domestic violence, addressing the causes of those crimes. So that would be my first thing, uh, if we if could at all possible. Then if, yeah. if we are sending both dads and moms to prison to recognise the importance of family and recognise the importance the rights of the child in the, in the debate because children are immensely damaged by parental imprisonment. You know, children of imprisoned parents have higher rates of mental ill health, more likely to be excluded from school. It's an adverse childhood experience that can lead to substance misuse, uh, alcohol use in the future, and definitely is linked to um, intergenerational crime. So I think both... The court system ought to look at the rights of the child in the sentencing length for instance and try to minimise the disruption if at all possible. I think that the, the prison then and I've seen great work at Guernsey Prison today around family therapy, inviting families into sentencing, keeping families abreast of the progress of that person in prison so that families feel part of the, the, the conversation. I'd also say that it's trying in our community to support the imprisoned families as a whole because prison field family uh, the families of prisoners feel tainted yeah. by the sentence themselves. So we heard today of some great training at the prison around hidden sentence. The hidden sentence that the families serve alongside their loved one in prison and the shame of that, you know, at one of my seminars a woman I noticed a woman was very tearful and I spoke to her afterwards and she had she she let me know that she was distressed because her husband had been in prison and she had never been able to speak about it.
1: Yeah. Did she so, feel like it wasn't her thing to speak about or was it
0: potentially or just the sort of like shame, embarrassment how other people might perceive that, or she said, you know, people, people, who knew, didn't know what to say or what sent or what support to offer. So it became, yes. you know, I suppose like it's sometimes when your somebody, one of your family members, dies. People not quite sure how to address that in work, are they? Or No. They, you know, we have a sort of peculiar way of going, it's a bit awkward to talk about, so I'd rather not say anything. But actually that silence can be interpreted as emotional neglect, lack of care, when it might not be that. Do you know what I mean? It might just we don't have the words to express or we don't know what to say or do, and I think that may well be the case around families.
1: Even harder with prison sentences surely if yeah. you know somebody at, at work or a friend and a partner or a family member has gone to prison I wouldn't even know what to begin to say compared to if somebody had passed away in that family
0: well I say it takes a takes a village to raise a child doesn't it and that's that's we should be all of us you know if it comes across our path as a challenge then maybe it's ours duty as citizens to respond to that challenge because it's it's your challenge if it's come to your attention um and that would be my would be (laughs) my uh, i suppose parting shot there really to say sometimes we're always waiting for somebody else to solve the problem and actually agency citizenship is about recognizing sometimes it's our duty to solve the problem that's not to devolve it to our legislators or devolve it to our policy people or devolve it to another service it's about to speak up about it in our personal life to recognize our need to respond to that to join forces with other people that are responding to that you know you don't have to do it all on your own there are agencies go and volunteer go and go contribute some money do something uh, because it's in all of our interest to do something rather than to be passive bystanders around pain and distress and disorder.
1: Absolutely. I do, one last question, Go if on. you allow me to have this one. more. one. I on. mean, um, it's it's because that was Thank a brilliant. Thank you for one. having me. No, I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Oh my Amelia. god!
0: Can we please talk about my podcast? Of course we can. <laughs> we can
1: finish off on talking about it, if you let me ask just you can indeed one more question, which is less fun, and then we can talk about Go. your podcast um, because. Investment and money is a big talking point in both islands. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. F- folding into the new year about how we fund everything. Yeah. And I wonder, is r- reform of prisons possible without investment or is money involved in these discussions about how we change what happens in a prison?
0: I mean, resources are always involved, but the first... But, you know, resources are always involved. But, but resources are not just money, are they? Their commitment, no. their, um, their commitment, their intention, their activity their kindness you know like, I, like you know like human kindness is not, doesn't have a cost to attach to it does it compassion doesn't have a cost attached to it Yes we do need to drive resources we need to have like a look at structural issues systemic issues mapping the system who's doing what combining collectively obviously all of that is important work to be done but it's going to be driven by change makers who are compelled to do that because they're moved at a moral level. And with a political lens and a vision for change, that they know it's the right thing to do.
1: Okay. That's a good answer. Okay. Well, you can tell me about your podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm told that you have a podcast that we listen to.
0: I do. I do have a podcast. And thank you so much for letting me come on today. Oh, no, I've really enjoyed it. I have a podcast myself in the UK called The Secret Life of Prisons. And it's done quite well, apparently. It has done quite (laughs) well. I'm I'm really proud to announce today we are... um, Uh, We've been nominated in the top five independent podcasts um, for what's called the Arias, which I don't know what that stands for, but I do know it's called, it's the Radio Academy Awards and they're like the BAFTAs. So I can, now that we're nominated, I can buy a really nice ball gown, get my hair done, get my nails done and actually like, pose with the people from BBC One shows and BBC One Extra you know it's like all the the top people from radio they go to these awards. When is this? It's in May we'll hear if we you know on the awards ceremony so it's proper you go to the awards ceremony they have presenters you know they read out (laughs) who and then the camera goes to you. Uh, I'm, I'm well... We've got a one in five chance. I we?
1: reckon you have a very good chance. So your podcast is what's the it secret, about?
0: The secret life of prisons. It's a, it's it's an attempt to bring the very secret world of prisons. Like what what happens in a prison? Yeah. What are prisoners like? You know, what's a cell like? What is it like to live in a cell? You know, what's the it like people- to have a visit? Those are the things that we're, we're just trying to create a window into the secret life of prisons. And it's uh, my co-host is uh, Phil Maguire, who's the uh, chief executive of the National Prison Radio. So in the UK, we have a national prison radio station that okay. broadcasts to all prisons in the UK. So it's 120 prisons. Uh, so our podcast is available on Spotify and all other sort of, you know, platforms. For um, external listeners, but prisoners also listen to it. Um, That's great. And so, uh, it's it's a radio show on on National Prison Radio. So we get and we have former prisoners come in to talk to us. We have guests, you know, we have researchers come in to talk to us. We did two episodes quite recently on the secret life of serving a life sentence. That would be fascinating. What, what is it like to actually? serve a sentence of 14 15 20 years and we had to, uh, to released people who'd committed very serious crime come on and talk to us along with uh professor ben crew of uh, cambridge university who just published a, uh, a new research paper on the impact of long sentences on individuals so you know we tried to tackle some difficult subjects but we also it has some light-hearted moments where we crack jokes and um yeah i i hope through listening to it people get to just have a, a broader understanding of a what's happening within prisons and think about the purpose of imprisonment and what we as a society want from it how do we balance the needs of retribution uh, with rehabilitation do we get that balance right and um just come away going well I know a lot more
1: thank you so much for being here
0: okay lovely thank you for having me (laughs) and uh, thank you
1: Thank you for listening to the Bailiwick Express podcast. The title track was Shift My Weight by Luno. If you enjoyed it, I know it's a pain, but please like and share. It all helps, and remember, you can hit bailiwickexpress.com to stay right up to date with whatever is happening in the Bailiwick. You can find us online, on social, on email, and on internet radio. There'll be more from me, Matthew Leach, and all the Bailiwick Express team next Friday.